The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and four months after the insurrection on the Capitol, we learned today Senate Minority Leader McConnell is joining Kevin McCarthy in opposing the bipartisan commission that the House voted on and is voting on today. We'll talk about that, the violence in Gaza, and we'll also hear from former Pennsylvania Governor Mark Schweiker. And I am Jeannie Shanzano, and coming up on the show today, I'm going to be joined on the panel by Lester Munson, principal at the BGR Group and Mark Schweiker, former governor of Pennsylvania. So excited to speak with both of them. And yesterday, as we saw President Biden at the Ford facility in Michigan, making the case for electric vehicles in pushing his infrastructure bill, he even took a test drive of Ford's new all-electric F-150 that's being unveiled tonight. Very excited about that. But while the president was in Michigan, we thought we were going to get a sneak peek into what the Republican moderates were going to be proposing by way of their counterproposal to the president's massive infrastructure bill. We did not get much information on that. We didn't get a good sense as to how high they're willing to go. But earlier today, my colleague David Weston did get something of a sneak peek because he spoke exclusively to Republican from West Virginia, Senator Shelley Moore Capito, about her role as the top GOP negotiator with the White House on this bipartisan approach to infrastructure. Senator Capito told David that the next two weeks are going to be critical to determining whether there'll be a deal with the White House and Republicans. We have sound on that. We did have a meeting in my office with the White House officials yesterday where we, the six of us senators, uh, came forward with a, a repurposing of our original proposal. So whether you want to call that a counter proposal or not, uh, where we could again look at definitionally where we believe infrastructure is and then where those numbers would line out over a certain period of time. And the White House said that they would get back to us this week. Uh, so we're waiting for that, uh, hopefully Thursday or Friday, so we can keep this process moving. I think we're all dedicated to finding an end result here. We're still, you know, we still have differences, and, and so we need to work through those. I wonder how, if at all, the two sides are moving toward one another. Uh, your original proposal, as I recall, was just under $600 billion total, put it all together. Mm -hmm. And then we heard Mitch McConnell, the minority leader in the Senate, say, well, maybe we go to eight. We've now heard Lindsey Graham, maybe $900 billion. Where are you right now? Are you still under $600 billion? Where can you get to? 
Well, I'm not sure where we, the, the best way to look at it is what do we need, and then we try to figure out what that is going to cost and how we pay for it. And that's the approach that we've taken. Let's look at the essential infrastructure items, roads and bridges, waterways, airports, rail, uh, and uh, infrastructure, and uh, uh, broadband. Let's put together a robust pop. Uh, uh, package, and let's move it, uh, move the numbers where we need to do that. So we're in the process of doing that. Obviously, the president is very committed to electric vehicle um, infrastructure. So that's another an area that we need to look at. I think in order to satisfy him. So we're, we're moving, uh, and obviously we would be moving up because that would be moving towards the president's numbers. But you know, I don't want to negotiate, you know, in public simply because <laughs> I think we need to do it uh, yeah. as we're in the room together. Yeah, you're certainly welcome to negotiate with me if you want, but I, <laughs> Thank I'm, you. I'm not surprised that you don't want to particularly do that. But but yeah. electric vehicles, that's very important because that's something, as I recall, was not in your original proposal. That is terribly important to the president, as you said. Are you indicating there might be, might be some flexibility there on the Republican side? Well, what we're doing here is we're mirroring what's going on in committee. I'm uh, the ranking member of EPW. We're doing a surface transportation bill. There is electric vehicle infrastructure in that bill, as there was last year, the bill that I uh, voted for last year that never became law. So our anticipation is that this would be a part of this, yes. And I think it's an important part. It's just now measuring how important you want it to be and what are we looking for the future. I don't want to incentivize, um, I don't want to have uh, go into a space where private investment can really uh, fill this space, which is, I think, what happens with EV infrastructure. So let's figure out a way that government can jumpstart it and then let that private investment go, because there's going to be money made here on that. So West Virginia clearly is an important energy state. How does that work for the state of West Virginia at this point? Uh, is, is your economy prepared to deal with an electric vehicle future? Well, I think I probably represent one of the states where electric vehicles will uh, probably pose a bit of a challenge. We have a very mountainous terrain. We have a lot of windy roads. So getting the infrastructure into our particular state is going to be a particular challenge. Um, I think that we will move to electric vehicles. I just heard a news report this morning about a small town that's going to have an EV um, cruiser, and they're all excited about it. But we, we already have some of the infrastructure in place at certain uh, certain stops, mostly along the interstate. So we're going to fill in those gaps for sure. Uh, Senator, let's talk about how you might finance whatever the number is. It's 600, 800, yes. 900, whatever the number is, how you finance it. What is the potential well, role for public-private partnerships? And particularly, what about an infrastructure bank? Is the White House open to that as a way of financing some of this? We spent a lot of time uh, talking about uh, how we can get private investment into this infrastructure space. And I think that's critical, whether it's uh, private uh, public-private partnerships, but uh, we are looking at some kind of financing authority, revolving fund, infrastructure bank, to be able to give us the longevity and to fill the gap that we have from the gasoline tax, because that's a declining resource. That's still about a $300 billion um, over five years resource for us, but as we know, that's going to go down. We've got to get something to fill the gap. We're going to look at EV um, electric vehicle users. Uh, they're not paying into the road fund. We need to figure out a way to have them help us with the maintenance of the roads that they use. We're looking at vehicle miles traveled. I think that's another possibility maybe for some um, 
uh, truck fleets or larger fleets of that nature, where they already have the the, um, the chips installed, they can, they can do that quite easily. So I think there's a lot we can do on that space on users, but I do think that this um, private investment uh, that we can put into our infrastructure development is critical, and we're working on that with the White House, yes. I think we're both like-minded there. Well, that, that's really my point, exactly, and I understand no deal's done until the entire deal's done, so you can't have part of right. it done. But right now, as you look at it, it sounds like there might be, as you say, some common ground there. We might be able to expect something like an infrastructure bank or private-public partnerships as well as the, as the tax, which would substitute for gasoline tax on vehicle miles traveled. That's something you think there might be common ground on. Well, we definitely want to pay for it, and I think there's all kinds of different ways that we're looking at. Certainly repurposing some of the COVID dollars. I've been looking at those 21 states that are no longer paying the enhanced unemployment. Why don't we repurpose that dollars to help those folks coming off of unemployment to get work in infrastructure package? It sounds like a, a, a good win-win situation for those dollars. So I think we're looking at that as another way to um, fill the coffers to pay for infrastructure. But this is really important to the country. It's important to jobs. And, you know, nothing's off the table, I don't think, right now, but we're trying to reach a decision. Uh, but we got to figure out what we want and how much it costs before we really get granular on the pay-fors. Uh, just to give maybe a little more granular than you'd like on the pay-fors, I talked to Senator Pat Toomey, your colleague, recently, and he really yes. emphasized the repurposing, if I can put it that way, of money already appropriated. He thinks there's hundreds of billions of dollars there. Is the White House at least open to that possibility of taking some of the money that's already been appropriated and putting it into infrastructure? You know, I think you'd probably have to better ask the White House that question. Uh, as I said, nothing's been taken off the table. They listened. We talked about that yesterday. Um, and so I don't think our expectations that they would swallow that, you know, entirely. But there may be areas we can work together. But that one's still... Uh, to be determined. So, Senator, you are in the room. You are the point person on the Republican side at this point. Uh, let me get your sense, just a general sense. I won't hold you to this. If you were going to estimate what the likelihood is we will get some form of bipartisan agreement, where would you put the odds right now? Is it 25 percent, 50-50? Where do you think it is, given where we are? You know, I think I'm, I'm always a little bit of a, uh, too much of an optimist at times, but I'm putting it over 50-50. Uh, I do think we have gaps here, and, but we do have the will to want to do this. And, and so this is where I think the real value is. So, you know, I'd put us, I don't know, a little bit over 50% being able to do it, but it's going to have to come together quickly. Uh, the president doesn't want to wait. Uh, I don't blame him there. And so I think the next two weeks will probably be the critical time. time spot. Well, and that is the question about the timing, because as you said, there's a lot of impetus to move fairly quickly. There was talk about having an agreement in principle, not a legislation done, but an agreement in principle by Memorial Day. Do you think that's realistic at this point? We're, we're working towards that. Uh, I think it's important to note as well that our committees are working. Uh, I, we've already passed the water part of this infrastructure package out of our committee and actually out of the Senate floor. Um, my committee, EPW, with Chairman Carper, we're working towards surface transportation, which is really the anchor part of this infrastructure, but also over on commerce. They're working on broadband and safety and, and, and other parts of the program through regular order in our committees, which I think is significant because if we get the buy-in at the committee level, we can definitely get it at, at, you know, onto the floor. So we're hopeful we'll, we'll be, have much more clarity by Memorial Day. So if you get clarity and it's positive clarity, uh, is it realistic to expect legislation by July 4? I, you know, I, that probably is going to go above my pay grade at some point. But, um, you know, I've heard that as sort of a stop, a stop date, a July 4th date. Um, 
sometimes having good, hard, solid deadlines pushes us quicker and, and more aggressively. So, I mean, I don't think that's totally unrealistic, but right now it's hard for me to see July 4th as an end date. That was Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Republican of West Virginia, speaking exclusively with Bloomberg's David Weston and making some news. She put the odds of getting a deal at over 50-50 and said the counter might include electric vehicles, amongst other things. Coming up, we're going to speak with Lester Munson, principal of BGR Group, about that and much more as it pertains to our competitiveness with China infrastructure, and when we might see a deal. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. And I am Jeannie Shanzano here along with Lester Munson, principal of the BGR Group. And Lester, it is always great to talk to you and so important today because, of course, so much news going on about things that I know you follow so carefully. But before we do that, can I just get you to react to David Weston's interview with Shelley Moore Capito? Because I thought she made some real news there on what we might expect from this counterproposal. Yeah, thanks, Jeannie. I, uh, I love that interview. I love hearing from Senator Capito. She's uh, pragmatic. She's thinking about things that matter to Americans and voters and taxpayers. And she's got some pretty sensible ideas about what's good public policy, what should be left to the private sector. There was not a lot of ideological craziness with her. It's a, it is very refreshing to hear something like that. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I thought it was, you know, I was, you know, particularly pleased to hear her and David pushed her on this putting the odds, which is always hard to do, which she said at, is at about 50 percent, maybe more that we see a deal. But but Lester, I wanted to see if you could sort of walk us through this Senate so-called China bill to add 
$52 billion for U.S. chip making. It's something that Bloomberg has been covering a lot. Yesterday, Chuck Schumer called it a historic and immediate infusion of federal money to restore U.S. manufacturing of semiconductors that are crucial as we speak about automobile manufacturing to automobile and electronics industries, as well as the military. So could you tell us a little bit about the bill and your thoughts on it? Sure. I, I think it's a, it's a really important piece of legislation. It, by the way, it may end up getting merged with some kind of compromise on infrastructure issues. So it's possible that, you know, what Senator Capito was talking about and what we're talking about now end up being the same big kind of investment bill from Congress, which, which would be very interesting. I think it's a, it's a terrific the, the question about supporting key industries uh, because of the challenge from China is very much a bipartisan concern. In the Trump administration, uh, it took more of a punitive approach where the administration was looking to sanction certain Chinese industries, uh, imposing tariffs. The Biden administration and Chuck Schumer had said, why don't we think about uh, a more positive approach supporting American uh, industries that are challenged by that are competing with Chinese companies. So they've got this bill on the floor this week and next week. It's not just one committee's bill. It's a handful of committees. People here inside the Beltway know what that means. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of trade-offs. Uh, there's a lot of compromises going on. That's legislating at its finest. Uh, this is when, when you usually use the metaphor, you know, that you might like sausage, but that doesn't mean you want to watch them make it. Uh, that's that's going on in the Senate right now. There's, there's a lot of members focused on their different provisions in this bill. It's going to turn into a Christmas tree or a runaway train. There's going to be a lot of stuff put on this. We'll see if it can maintain momentum with all that on it in a bipartisan way, get to the House, survive maybe a little more ideological treatment from Dems in the House, and then come up with something that would be passable in the Senate again. I think it's, there's a long road for this China bill to go. But it, uh, but it looks good right now. Senator Schumer has opened it up for Republicans. A lot of Republicans are playing along, not necessarily all of them, but so far it looks like we may, we may have a real constructive piece of legislation. Yeah, and this so-called Schumer-Young bill, which includes, I understand, uh, even more than $100 billion over five years for research and development, innovative technology, manufacturing, um, something that, you know, I personally am, 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 you know, very supportive of as it pertains to colleges, universities, and other institutions within the context of the National Science Foundation to focus on technology. But from a political perspective, and you just raised this, um, many people are suggesting that while there seems to be bipartisan support, more or less, in the Senate, the path of the bill in the House is less certain. Can you talk a little bit about what changes we may see in the House and why it is, you know, not as widely supported potentially there? Well, it's a, it's a great question. You know, this, the the House, the Democrats have a very narrow majority in the House. It's about ten or twelve votes, about five or six seats. It's as, it's as narrow a margin as we've ever seen in that in that body. Uh, so they're, they're really uh, kind of walking a, a, a very tight line here. They've, uh, the Democrats in leadership have a dilemma. How do they keep their left flank, the progressives, on board with a plan that won't eventually alienate Republican senators? Because you're going to need two parties, at least in the Senate, 
This is the way the Senate works. You need 60 votes to pass something like this. That means at least 10 Republicans are coming along. So while you can get through the House with just Democratic votes, if the House changes it far enough to the left, then Republicans in the Senate may balk and say, hey, we're not, we didn't sign up for this. So if it turns into a, a vehicle for the priorities of progressive Democrats, whether that's you know, a little too much of a tilt towards glo- uh, climate change issues, a little bit too much of a tilt towards, uh, you know, perhaps racial justice or gender issues instead of a focus on competing with China, then, you're, then you risk losing that bipartisan agreement in the Senate. So, that, so the House Democrats' leadership in particular is going to have a real dilemma here because they know this, they want this bill to go through. They need to keep their left flank with them, but the left flank may demand a lot. Yeah, ah, the sausage making, Lester. You explained it perfectly. Lester and I are going to be speaking with Mark Schweiker, the former governor of Pennsylvania, about this and much more. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.30, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and coming up, we speak with former Pennsylvania Governor Mark Schweiker about his recent editorial calling for the Biden administration to finally put the masterminds of 9-11 on trial. And I am here along with Lester Munson, principal at the BGR Group, and really pleased to welcome former governor of Pennsylvania, Mark Schweiker, who is also senior vice president at Ren Matrix Inc. And I'm sure you both heard that today, Senator Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell became the latest member of Republican leadership to oppose the formation of a congressional commission that would look into the events surrounding the January 6th siege on the Capitol. McConnell today joined House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy in his opposition, saying the commission wouldn't be fair. But on the Senate floor today, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the GOP is playing a game of revisionist history in an effort to remain loyal to former President Trump. We have sound on that. Once again, they are caving to Donald Trump and proving that the Republican Party is still drunk off the big lie. Getting at the truth is more important now that some Republicans are trying to rewrite history. It's just incredible what they are doing. How much, how dishonest can they be in abject fear of the most dishonest president who's ever sat at the White House? So, Governor Schweiker, it's so good to talk to you. And I wanted to see if I can get your reaction to the decision by McConnell and McCarthy not to support the bipartisan commission that John Katko, one of the Republican leaders in the House, led uh, the charge in putting together. Yeah, sure. Jeannie, I... I it is disappointing. I do think there's an awful lot of uh, civic and political and governmental good that could, would arise from a, a, a review, taking a look closely at what happened that fateful day on January 6th, a formally endowed commission with the, the resources and the investigative ability to, to, you know, I think we know the, what occurred. Uh, and, but, but why? And uh, 
uh, organizers and uh, getting to the bottom of it. I think there is an awful lot of insight that could be shared and would have a calming effect uh, for our country, much as uh, it occurred dynamically after uh, what occurred on 9-11 in 2001, a small parallel there. And, and Lester, what do you make of, um, given what the governor just said, uh, what do you make then of McConnell and McCarthy's argument that Democrats weren't being fair about how the commission would operate? And just before you, you answer, I'm going to just play a little sound we have on that and then come back to you after we play it. The facts have come out and they'll continue to come out. What is clear is that House Democrats have handled this proposal in partisan bad faith, going right back to the beginning. What do you make of his argument and, and McCarthy's argument about bad faith and unfairness on the Democrat side? Well, Republicans are trying to include in the investigation some of the other violence that happened in the country in the last year or so to include some of the, uh, the violence and riots that happened over the summer after the George Floyd killing, uh, Antifa activities and some other things. I'm not sure how plausible of a suggestion is, but that's what they've been pushing for. The real fumble here happened in the House when you had Congressman Katko agree to the basic investigation with the Democrats, and then McCarthy had to reverse course from there. So that was, that was just kind of some bad political management there on the House side. Frankly, I think the Republicans are not in a great spot here. It should look like they want to embrace uh, truth-seeking and, and a fair evaluation of what happened on January 6th. I think that would be a much better position for them. On the other hand, there's some pretty inside baseball stuff. Democrats are all too happy to make Republicans look like they're against this thing. I'm not sure how much voters really care at the end of the day for the election coming up next year. I would say the Republicans got the short end of the stick on this one. It's a, it's a good point. And, and, you know, I think um, Catco's role here is one thing that, that has really astounded me on all of this. Um, you know, in other news today, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky was answering questions from lawmakers on the Senate Appropriations Committee regarding the latest guidance about wearing masks and uh, the vaccine. Um, the CDC was saying, obviously, fully vaccinated Americans don't have to wear masks outdoors or indoors in most settings, but mask guidelines are still in place in other areas like public transit, health care settings, and airplanes. And as some states drop their mask mandates, a few are keeping their requirements for now. So Dr. Walensky was answering questions from Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, who asked for a streamlined explanation for the new guidance, and we have sound on that. Last Thursday, we released guidance that demonstrated for an individual who is able, who is fully vaccinated and not immunocompromised, that they are able to safely unmask, um, with the exceptions, um, certain exceptions, of course, in travel corridors, healthcare settings. Um, that if you are an individual, you can safely unmask if you're fully vaccinated. Inside and outside. Inside and outside. So, so, Governor, in the 40 seconds we have left, um, what do you make of the CDC's guidance here, and how are things in your home state of Pennsylvania? Well, I think CDC slow to the draw. <laughs> I think the American public is well ahead. Uh, I think in a very thoughtful way, most can be counted on to comport themselves in a responsible way, and when they're outside, they're not wearing masks. I mean, it, it's a beautiful day as we get ready for the summer and Memorial Day weekend coming. I think they've made their own decision that uh, they're going to be responsible, respect the 
the wishes of others in, and in, in select settings, uh, if need be, wear the mask. But I think day by day by day, the American public has decided, has decreed uh, no more masks, um, and they still can uh, help in a civic sense uh, keep their community safe when they make that kind of thoughtful decision. And, Governor, it is a beautiful day, and you just got me very excited for Memorial Day. Um, we're going to be speaking more with the former governor about his editorial, which is fascinating, and also obviously get Lester's reaction to that and more of the news today, including the president's reaction to what is going on on the Gaza Strip. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. And I am Jeannie Shanzano. I'm here with Lester Munson, principal of the BGR Group and former governor of Pennsylvania, Mark Schweiker, who also is a senior vice president at Renmatrix, Inc. And governor, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this really moving piece you wrote in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I think it was published yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, about the approaching 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and your efforts to see those responsible finally be brought to justice for their crimes. Can you talk a little bit about your thinking and the piece that you published in the Inquirer? Sure. Well, Jeannie, it's really about honoring uh, the memory and uh, supporting the families of 3,000 people that died uh, that fateful day in 2001 on 9-11. It's about reminding, at least in Pennsylvania, that that 42 children lost parents that day. And since, uh, you know, we've had 10,000 first responders who are deal with thing, dealing with a variety of cancer challenges as a result of fighting uh, and, and the work they did on the pile in Manhattan. So uh, at, it, it's, it's difficult to ponder. It, it, it's stunning to know that here it is almost 20 years after uh, these four airplanes uh, Interestingly, uh, you know, two American airliners and two United airliners. Uh, you know, if anything, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was mindful of symbolism, and thus he chose those 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 four planes and those two airlines, it, synonymous with the United States of America, uh, and all that they wrought that day. That the, the the trial date has not been reset, and so. Uh, and, and KSM himself was apprehended 17 years ago in Pakistan, just a few years after uh, uh, 9-11 itself in 2001. And, and yet uh, it, it's troubling to, to see that the judicial system is not moving. The wheels are stopped, figuratively speaking. So it is really uh, in honoring the families and the survivors, a respectful attempt to raise with uh, the big heart at Joe Biden, and he, he does have a big heart, and we know that, and he's dealt with quite a bit of loss in his own life, and I say that respectfully, uh, to remind he, as the president, that uh, this is a, a task that is, at, at this moment, uh, undone. And uh, let's get about the business of completing the trial. 
And in your piece, you note that um, justice, I'm quoting what you wrote here, justice and closure can only happen when the Biden administration finally does what its predecessors did not bring to trial the mastermind of these attacks. So why hasn't, I mean, it is stunning. And we, of course, know that you came into office as a result of the attacks. You became governor as a result. But 20 years later, why hasn't this happened yet? How, how do we make sense of that? Well, it's a mystery to many of us who, uh, so to speak, were on the front lines and really uh, believed that as the months and the years uh, would come at us and the 9-11 commission work was completed and, you know, all but pointed the finger at, uh, not all but pointed the finger, made it quite clear then uh, KSM himself uh, acknowledged his role and responsibilities in this uh, in, in, uh, in, in numerous interrogations that uh, it, it, I don't think there's, one unassailable uh, point of view that, that answers that question. Uh, there have been uh, references to uh, other countries uh, being involved in the recruitment of the terrorist. Uh, there has, and uh, as we all know, a year and a half ago, and it certainly made sense at the time, but no, uh, no more appealing was that the pandemic hit us and the date had to be reset. The, I mean, for accuracy's sake, the date was set, and it was to be post. It was postponed, but no date has been circled, and, and thus the the editorial piece. So, uh, I, I I don't have uh, any insight to that mystery. And Lester, um, as we talk about 9-11 and the anniversary this year, of course, another big thing that is supposed to be occurring that day, including commemoration of 9-11, is that we will finally be withdrawing from Afghanistan. And what is your view on the president's move vis-a-vis Afghanistan? And of course, the governor's call for a trial date to finally be set or the trial to finally occur for those who masterminded it. Jeannie, uh, first, let me thank the governor for writing the op-ed. I think it's very timely. It's incredible that this hasn't already happened. Bravo to you, sir, for for writing that. I I went to high school with Todd Beamer, who was on Flight 93, and um, I I still get pretty emotional about uh, the whole thing and um, uh, really appreciate you kind of surfacing this issue. I think it's really important. Jeannie, on um, Afghanistan, I am of two minds. Uh, I think it's, it's going to be a very po- problematic for the U.S. and our interests after the withdrawal of our forces. Things do not look good in Afghanistan. Uh, on the other hand, I, I confess to being rather sympathetic to the view that um, we've been there for a very long time. We may have lost sight of the mission over time. And um, uh, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to be pulling out of there if we can uh, make arrangements strategically to position our folks in a way that allows us to respond if something bad does happen in Afghanistan uh, and, and to support democratic forces there. I'm a little skeptical that that can happen, but so I'm, I'm really of kind of two minds. I'm sorry I'm not more definitive on that question. I think many of us are. I, I'm so empathetic to that view. I know I've talked to so many people, and Governor, I would just ask you as somebody who's thought so much about these issues as President Biden made the decision to withdraw these troops. Um, 
do you think he is making the right move? And he is facing some pushback from people who say that leaving 2,500 troops there and ensuring the safety of women in particular and children who are likely to incur and, and be subject to a good deal of violence after we, uh, we leave, it, we probably should be staying. What is your view on that? Well, individually speaking, I and the president's in a tough spot, as all presidents have been uh, who have wrestled with this deployment, you know, it, given the raucous political and on-the-ground affairs of Afghanistan. My, my feeling is I think, you know, the uppermost in our mind ought to be the American public, their appetite for uh, their sense of backing the compact for being deployed there and fighting militarily. I think that has dissipated. I think it is time to withdraw uh, Jeannie, my heart goes out to, uh, you know, the, 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 the women and the, the, the young women and, and girls in Afghanistan who are denied, as we know, uh, formal education simply because of a, of a certain point of view. Uh, it, it, it helps with economy building when education is offered as we've so richly endowed and noticed here in our U.S. So, uh, all that being said, I, I, I think it's best uh, that we do exit. The, it, it's not been successful, uh, lost uh, an awful lot. And uh, so I, 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 I believe that the, the president uh, is being the president. Time to make the decision, time to exit. And I want to ask you in the couple minutes uh, we have remaining, ask both of you to just reflect on another part of the world where the president is, um, you know, dealing with with the violence um, in Israel and, and violence between, I should say, Israel and, and, and Palestine. Um, we know that despite growing pressure that for a ceasefire that has not happened yet and speaking to foreign ambassadors at the Israeli defense ministry today, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu blamed Hamas for the violence and said they will continue to crack down on the militant group, and we have sound on that. This is not merely a question of Israel's security. It's a question of our common security and our common interests in the Middle East. There are only two ways that you can deal with them. You can either conquer them, and that's always an open possibility, or you can deter them. Uh, and we are engaged right now in forceful deterrence, but I have to say we don't rule out anything. So, Lester, in the 30 seconds we have left, um, is President Biden, his quiet diplomacy, the right approach here? Well, I think it's, it's probably the only realistic approach. We don't, we don't, we're not going to have a ton of influence on this decision. Our envoy over there, while very competent, is fairly low level. Uh, I hope the president is working like crazy behind the scenes, uh, talking to key leaders to bring this thing to an end quickly. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is not wrong. This is Hamas's fault. Um, and I, uh, having said that, I hope it's, it's over very quickly. And I want to just echo that. We all hope it's over so quickly. And the president continues to be under pressure, uh, particularly by members of the progressive flank of his party, to take a more forceful approach. So we'll have to see what he does in the coming days. And I want to thank so much Lester Munson, principal at BGR Group, and former governor of Pennsylvania, Mark Schweiker, who's also senior vice president at Ren, Ren Matrix Inc. Please check out his really fine editorial, 20 years since the 9-11 attacks in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Definitely worth the read. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.